Good morning and welcome to another edition of the Exponential Investor Podcast. Uh, I am your editor, Sam Volkering, here with my co-editor, Kit Winder. Now, it's been a few weeks since you've heard from us uh, both on this podcast. I've been away on paternity leave, ushering in a new life into the world, uh, which has taken up my time for a few weeks. Uh, granted, it wasn't me. It was my wife. She did all the heavy lifting on that one. But uh, I've been helping bits and pieces. But anyway, Kit, it is great to be back with you talking about markets and stuff related to that, uh, hopefully grabbing the attention of our listeners and, and helping them learn about things perhaps they didn't know or certainly aren't getting from the mainstream media. So, yes, thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, now, we shall kick off this. I, I know you've got a couple of questions that you want to ask me. But I want to ask you a question first, um, and then we'll dive into the ones you've got for Even me. Even when I preload a question, I can't escape the surprise. No, it's, that's that's the beauty of this Friday podcast. You I never quite know what you're going to get. It's uh, it's like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. Uh, nonetheless, uh, all right, so the question I've got, Kit, is uh, I was looking at the uh, SMMT SMMT, yeah, the uh, Society for Motor Manufacturers and Traders stats uh, from their July new vehicle registrations. Um, And I found it interesting. So we know that for a while now, the new car registrations for diesel and petrol cars has been on the decline. And there's been a marked increase uh, in EVs, in in battery-powered EVs. But the thing I was interested in about these stats kit, and I want to just get your thoughts on maybe what this may be telling us, uh, is that uh, outstripping the growth of battery EVs is the growth in hybrid EVs, both the mild uh, hybrid EVs, which is a combination of battery power and petrol and diesel power, um, and the um, and the plug-in hybrid EVs again, a, a hybrids really a, a combination of existing fuels as well as battery technologies and, and more efficient uh, powertrain technologies. They they were all outstripping uh, battery EVs in terms of growth, and I just I found that fascinating. That I would have thought that we'd still be seeing we'd we'd be seeing growth in in battery. EVs above everything else, but it doesn't seem to be the case that people want to quite completely shake uh, access to to the fossil fuels as, as part of their vehicles. I mean, uh, what, what I mean, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think it's uh, a very interesting point. I saw some similar stuff this week, actually. Um, one of my favorite bits of work that I did this year was trying to combine the work that I do with James on the energy transition. And we talk a lot about big numbers of, you know, electric vehicle growth and the development of batteries and costs coming down and all mm. of those things. But then I um, had a five-year-old, you know, 2004 Focus, my first car. It was great, but it was getting pretty tired and I was looking to upgrade. And so I thought, I'm going to like, I'm going to analyze the car market from a buyer's perspective with mm. the sort of energy transition in mind. And I found, you know, I think of probably a, a lot of things that a lot of, you know, the people push that are, are driving the, the growth of hybrids found, which is that I live in a flat, so I can't have my own charging station. The street I'm on has got no charge points coming out of lampposts. Mm. The, the one around the corner, it's got two, but any stretch about 10 yards and so if you're not in one of the three spaces next to them you're in a 
spot a bother and they're not it's not like they're reserved for electric vehicles so the pure ev thing i was i really wanted it and but then they were all even the secondhand ones they're all sort of 2015 models or later so they were out of my price range basically that was the bottom line for me as much as i wanted it but i thought you know i'll wait two or three years now i looked at hybrids as well um and that's sort of where it pushes you. You just, especially in the second-hand car market, which has been one of the real drivers of inflation lately, it's booming. Everyone's going yeah. for second-hand cars. They're scared of public transport. It all makes sense. Um, you know, hybrids, you've got models going back to 2007-8. You've got the full range of prices. You've got models from every car company. You've got, you know, the whole works, really. And it it's pretty easy to understand, I think, also just the nervousness people still have they're not quite over it so i think um the hybrid is like a nice stepping stone you think i'll buy a hybrid now five or ten years i'll get an electric um the interesting thing then is that the governments when they or at least the uk government is the one i mainly know about when they issue their bans on what kind of cars you're going to be able to buy so the uk is going to ban the sale of new petrol cars from 2035 and they're mulling bringing it forward to 2030 Mm -hmm. uh, in advance of the cop 26 summit in glasgow the follow-on to paris 2015 so we're trying to pull out all these big you know announcements kind of thing so it might come forward but for now it's all new petrol diesel cars from 2035 and hybrids too and also plug-in hybrids so a hybrid a plain regular hybrid has two engines where the petrol is predominant and the electric could do 30 to 40 miles. Yeah. A plug-in hybrid is sort of the inverse. It's a hybrid favoring the electric. It could sort of do 200 miles on an electric motor, but has a petrol backup kind of thing. Um, both of those are also going to be banned. And then you get into a really interesting debate, I think, about whether we're trying to get to net zero, which I understand is bringing the carbon cycle into balance. So we've got enough trees and enough algae in the ocean. Um, balancing out the burning fossil fuels that humanity does or whether we're trying to get to no carbon which i think is something that people often fail to clarify yeah um and it's quite an important distinction i'm a fan of net carbon of balancing the carbon cycle um so things like decarbonized natural gas can function you don't have to get rid of all fossil fuels um so i don't mind the hybrids i think there are ways to make them incredibly or much more um environmentally friendly um and i think that they would be suitable for a lot of people and there'll be some people you know in the remote countryside you've mentioned before you know farmers in the outback in australia who just yeah. need a diesel or a petrol truck that's sort of fine too that's why it's net zero not no zero not no carbon i mean um so yeah i just think there's some interesting questions there and i i can kind of understand why everyone's now when everyone's going crazy for secondhand cars why they're going for hybrids over pure electrics i wonder then um I mean, I guess that. So, one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is the rise of uh, smart devices and, and technology, particularly in the 2000s, has been um, around the idea of what happens to those devices when they're dead. Um, and, and, you know, the recycling of materials within those sorts of devices. And I, I come to, I sort of now come to think about what happens. Uh, going forward to sort of 2030 
when they do stop the the sale of new vehicles, that doesn't mean that there won't be a thriving second-hand market for them. But you inevitably think that that's also going to lead uh, to you know to to pushes towards the infrastructure required for a world where there's only going to be new uh, battery-powered EVs on the road. What happens to all the rest of of the stuff of the materials that go into the current plug-in hybrids or mild hybrids or the ice cars that eventually do get replaced then uh with with battery evs and i mean i don't don't expect you to have an answer to this at all but i I tend to think that um the recovery of 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 the materials from these vehicles that that still especially with with hybrids and things that still have battery power and battery technologies and the materials required for those and the the magnets used in those um motors and things like that there's probably going to be a thriving opportunity uh, for the right companies to to in the recycling of a lot of that as well. Um, in, in in terms of the idea of zero carbon or net zero, I'm uh, I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm I'm all for for net zero. I think it's a I think it's naive to believe that the world can become a zero carbon emitting uh, society. Um, it's just it's just not going to happen. Uh, not in in our lifetime um and interestingly when you mentioned the idea of net zero um and i've said this before a few times that when it comes time to upgrade my wife's car she said that she's she has no need for a long range uh vehicle so a a battery powered car would be more than suitable when uh when that time comes and i agreed with her on that and said that we will become a net zero automobile family um, and to balance out her, her her car shifting to a battery, I will get a twin turbo V8 petrol car, and we will be net zero. And I think that's fair. Um, but moving on, uh, did you have anything else you wanted to sort of add to our net zero d- discussion uh, before we we jump into the questions you had for me? Oh, I need to recycle an old point. If you want to be net zero, I think. Um... I did the calculations actually based on my annual mileage about two and a half thousand miles. Um, I mainly just drive to cricket games in the summer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Massive. Um, And trying to work out the the difference in cost between uh, going from a petrol car, let's say a few grand 2010 model to an electric second-hand car which would have to be sort of 2016 17 15 grand or something yeah Uh, and like what are my emissions saved for cost and then i also thought what if i just get i tried to think of the gas guzz in this car and i got like a 2002 range rover um (laughs) with a v8 in it or v6 or something and i calculate its emissions and i calculate how much i have to spend planting trees to offset the emissions of the land rover versus electric car and Kind of depressingly, it was quite a lot cheaper to just get the really, really awesome 2002 Land Rover. <laughs> just plant trees. trees. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, I it would. I already do uh, tree planting to offset, like you know, the average UK person's emissions, and I did it yeah. twice, so I'm sort of safe and whatever. Um, it's not that much more than you know a few quid a month to offset the difference in emissions. To be honest. Um, which just highlights maybe an underestimated fact, which is how important uh, natural carbon offsets can be. And if they're done right, I'm just, just, just on this still as well. And this sort of just came to me. I wonder what, 
I mean, so the, a lot of these these policies and this, this these goals, uh, you know, what happens in you know another five six years time, perhaps when there where maybe there's a change of change of policy uh, in in government, and all of a sudden they realise that you know having people replace their gas boilers uh, to um, heat pumps isn't going to work and isn't going to win the votes uh, and that all of a sudden these policies the, there's a shift in position on these policies i mean is that something is that a risk i think that you guys consider when you're looking at some of these things as well is that we could that that while this seems to be the direction that it's heading that there's still an element of of that political risk involved with it too the the cynicism of modern politics uh, does make me nervous the way in which it's a crafty slogan-led vote-winning mm. apparatus of power. Three-word um, catchphrases and everything. Yeah, it's, it's unsettling for way more reasons than just the energy transition. To be honest, I think my my perspective always with the politics, and this is where you know I disagree fervently with our colleague Nick Hubble, as brilliant as he is, um, is that he sees any political action as dictatorial whereas i see it as entirely responsive and an attempt to win votes so it's a sort of chicken and egg and with the energy transition i would say all of the policies that he sees now as the government forcing the green agenda on the people actually the politicians definitely came to this second the people came first yeah um, not all of the people not all at once you know some were early movers but the middle of the bell curve of the population at least in the uk and and lots of western or developed nations has arrived at, at a point where they see what's happening in germany with hundreds dying in developed cities from flooding they see you know four week forest fires and fire tornadoes in oregon and you know desperate droughts in africa and malnutrition and you know crises driven by hunger in the middle east leading to um you know political disruption and you know all of these things and in the uk the rain i mean even today when we're recording or three weeks ago my parents house got flooded for the first time in probably a decade and i don't know if you saw the photos of worcester park in london no over the weekend but their cricket ground you know the benches on it were submerged people were <laughs> swimming under the bridge like from a few hours of rain we are seeing in the last month more climate related disasters i think in the uk and the us than people would have wanted to see in 2021 and um i think that those aren't going to go away and i think that politicians will find it impossible to change tack on the energy transition in this decade uh, we we may we may not get around to everything we wanted to discuss today, but um, <laughs> I want to stick with this for a little bit because I also wonder. I, I agree with you that the that we that there are things like these the floods that are ravaging the, Germany and um, you know friggin' mice plagues in Australia. Australia oh, um, is biblical, uh, but Australia has always been biblical. Yeah. <laughs> Australia does natural disasters on a pretty decent scale. Um, when it comes to, to heat and fire and plagues and things like that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I, I also wonder, though, things like flooding of, of London and, and Germany and China and these places, is that, is that a byproduct of climate change or is that also just a byproduct of urbanisation of a lot of these areas and, and population growth and, and people being in places which do and always have been at risk of floods but haven't put in appropriate flooding measures 
uh, for those rare instances where we, you do get, you know, devastating uh, events like what we've seen recently? Is it a bit of both? I mean, maybe it is a bit of both. Maybe it's it's uh, a combination. But I um, I can see how some people sit on both sides of of that uh, that argument as well. Yeah. Um... I can to an extent. I mean, I've got a quote here from an article in the FT which says, from the deadly flooding in Germany to scorching heat in Canada, a deluge in the Black Sea region, and the pace and scale of catastrophic damage, uh, which has been almost unimaginable, uh, even for the scientists who spent their lives studying it. I think the fact that there are so many client scientists coming out and just saying, this is way sooner and way worse than we imagined already, has just been freaking me out to be honest um and i just find it too compelling i think um the volatility of weather that you're seeing um in the uk in terms of when our heat is coming and when our summer is coming or the consistency of it is noticeable mm -hmm. uh, i've spent a large portion of my life working as a ski instructor in the alps and so i've gotten to know a lot of people uh, in a town in austria and you speak to them and the seasons and the again, the volatility of the weather around a winter season, which is the, the bedrock of the Austrian economy, really, uh, and the Alpine economy, um, is incredible. You get a huge dump of snow in October, which is useless because no one's there and the resort isn't open. And then in the middle of February, it'll be five degrees and the whole resort is melting. And then randomly in mid-April, when everyone's gone home, it'll come crashing down again with buckets of snow. And you just think it's impossible. It used to be so regular. Um, so I think in the last 10 years, it definitely has felt like the volatility of weather has increased. I think we just need to listen to the people who, as that quote read, have spent their lives studying it. Um, mm. and I think these things are just getting worse and worse. And, uh, the thing that scares me is that even if we stopped emitting all carbon now, the sort of the effect of carbon on the atmosphere and how and greenhouse gases more broadly for the people who are going to email in saying it's not just carbon. Um, it, there's a sort of 10 to 30 year lag um, in terms of the heating effect that it has in terms of uh, how long it stays up there. So even if we stop now, it would be getting worse probably for another 10 or 20 years. But we're not going to stop now. We're going to try and stop by 2050. And then the effects will be felt going on decades after that. So I just am uh, terrified if I ever think about it too seriously, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, you know, sometimes that, that throws up um, benefits as well. As I, I remember we may have discussed this before that parts of England are now starting to become, um, in terms of climate, uh, similar to regions in France, which were typically great for growing sparkling Sparkling wine, also known as champagne, that comes from the Champagne region. But um, the the sparkling wine industry in England is uh, is booming because of these changing climates that make it much more um, much more possible to grow uh, the grapes needed for for that kind of uh, for that kind of wine. So, I think uh, while there's certainly a, a, even to be fair, even in the last eight years I've lived here it, it, anecdotally I've noticed a change in when it's hot and the periods it's hot for and the length of those periods um and 
and if it means that the England has a thriving wine industry, I suppose there's probably upsides to some of these things as well. Yeah, I guess maybe we can sell that spark. Well, you know, we're going to have a few hundred million migrant workers coming up from the equator where it's getting hotter and drier. Maybe we can ask them to work in the fields. Well, I mean, like, I mean, to be to be fair though, I like coming from Australia. There's a number of listed companies on the Australian Stock Exchange that are wine producers. Uh, and they're great companies, big companies, a lot of value there. They export all over the world. Uh, there are there are companies similar in the UK, but I think, and I genuinely, I genuinely mean this, is I think that we're going to start to see an emergence of British wine as a bigger, more globally recognised industry than it perhaps has historically been known for. And I think that what you may find is that uh, that farming may start to wind off of certain areas and agriculture off of certain areas and, and look to new opportunities to utilise some, uh, some of those areas and, and one of those being the production and, and sale globally of wine. So I'd just keep, keep an eye out for that one, folks. I, I think there's, there's, there's going to be something in there in the next few years uh, worth keeping an eye on. But anyway... As I say, we've probably diverged from where we originally were going to go with uh, today's podcast and ended up talking about British wine uh, with climate change. Uh, so anyway, we might wrap it up there. Maybe we'll get to your questions you had for me uh, next week. Uh, I know Kit had a couple of questions about the crypto industry, about Binance and Tether, the stable coins, and uh, we were going to do a bit of a dive into that. But uh, we want to keep things nice and brief on the podcast here, and, and uh, we'll maybe tee that one up next week. So if anyone's got any anything they might want us to cover in relation to some of the things happening in the crypto space, feel free to write into us, uh, and we'll see if we can cover that in next week's Exponential Investor podcast. But uh, any closing remarks you'd like to make before we wrap up for today, Kit? No, you're good. Thanks, Sam. Great to speak to you again. Good to be back. Sounds good. I like it when there's nothing more to add because it means we can end. So thanks for tuning in. It's great to be back. We'll be back again with you next Friday with another Exponential Investor podcast. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. Uh, and we'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now.